0: Welcome to the Field Goals Podcast. I'm Brandon Schultz, and today I am joined by the new managing editor of Field Goals, Mookie Alexander, to talk about some postseason. Got a few topics on the slate, talk about a little bit of the championship games and uh, get into some offseason topics. Mookie, congratulations and uh, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you very much, Brandon. Yeah, it's uh, a new era at field goals, per se, but
1: or so to speak. We got uh, John Morgan way back in the day, and he's still on the staff now. And then Danny Kelly was a successor, and I'm the successor to Kenneth. So uh, we've got a big offseason ahead of us, and of course, a very important next season to look forward to. And I'm glad to uh, be at the helm for all of it.
0: Yes, and uh, you got into a very important topic on field goals this week. And it's, it's why I want to start off the show by talking Exactly why coach Carroll should be fired because for nine straight seasons, Mookie Pete Carroll, he had an incredible streak going on that finally came to an end in 2019. Maybe one of the most important streaks in the NFL of all time, the scoregami streak, nine straight years, nine straight years, Pete Carroll Seahawks won a game with a final score never before seen in the NFL and one of those games happened to be the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 48. And then that was followed up by a 36 to 16 win over the Packers in week one of 2014. So I wanted to ask you, Mookie, is this the reason why Pete Carroll should be fired?
1: Yeah, this is undeniably the biggest failure of the Seahawks season that they couldn't keep the Scorigami streak alive. And the, the incredible thing about this Scorigami streak, and for those of you who do not know what Scorigami is, uh, I can't believe you don't know when you're a, when you've been a regular Field Goals reader but you know just to for anybody who doesn't know it's when you have a scoreline that has never happened before in the NFL you get scoregami so in the Super Bowl 43-8 that scoreline had never happened before you get scoregami uh, so all these years that the Seahawks have been racking up these scoregami games under Pete Carroll they won all of them uh, so this year, the streak ends. I would have even accepted if they had lost a game, uh, but still gotten Scorigami. You could say, yeah, it wasn't all that bad. They kept the Scorigami streak alive. But Well, that's one of the now,
0: incredible things that I was noticing yeah. looking at your recent article was that all of the Scorigami games were Seahawks wins.
1: Yeah, and I swear that like, the, the 6-6 tie with Arizona would have been a, a Scorigami, but it wasn't. <laughs> so everything else was just... Like, Unusual, And that's one of the hallmarks of Seahawks football. You can expect the unexpected. You can expect the unusual and the out of the ordinary. But this year, maybe one of the weird things about the Seahawks season is that you didn't have this type of weird result i don't think the seahawks had any game this season where they had a safety and a safety can often be one of the the, the ways you can get scorigami uh but no odd like 29 to 5 or anything of that nature And they didn't even come close uh for the most part i think is the closest they got was the atlanta game where it was like 24 to 11 and if they had gotten a touchdown and stopped uh the scoring right there 31 to 11 would have counted but mm. instead it ended in a very boring 27 to 20 and that just it, it, it had to have disgusted so much of this fan base
0: well and i guess uh, you can't even look back and say you know pete carroll doubled up because i don't think that there was even a game where or that it had happened only once because uh i think all of the games were you know that it was within what like four games might have been the closest and so you can't even say that pete carroll took up all the good scorigami
1: yeah it, i think the Rarest scoreline that they hit uh, was the the Rams game it was thirty to twenty nine, so it, it had happened four or five times before. So it was a rare scoreline, but it was not a, a, a first time. So they need to fix this in twenty twenty.
0: <laughs> the streak is broken though. It's it's already been done. I guess time to start a new streak. But I, you know, Pete Carroll in his closing press conference for the season, he was asked about the most regrettable thing from this past season. And he didn't bring up Scorigami. He brought up the fact that there were so many injuries this year. And I know as Seahawks fans, we probably have our, our different things that we point to and say, you know, this is this is the one move that I regret the Seahawks making the most. I can see for Pete Carroll, you know, the guys not making it on the field. That would be something that would stick with him. And definitely an injury prone season with gosh, you go back even just looking at that game against the Cardinals, you know, a a team that they clearly had more talent than earlier on in the season. And I think if they had all of their healthy players in that game, that they have an advantage because Dwayne Brown was out that game, Jadavion Clowney out, Quandre Diggs, who they acquired and made such a big difference. Then Chris Carson goes down in that game. Rashad Penny was lost weeks earlier, you know, just so many injuries piled up in that Arizona Cardinals game. And you look at just how the season ended at, at how one or two games at the end of the year makes such a big difference. And so yeah, absolutely injuries, a big part of the season looking back on it. Yeah. He said it was most regrettable. I think it, he was asked which, what he regretted the most from this past season. I think yeah, that was I mean, the, the
1: injuries are just, are just bad luck more than anything, unless there really is something to, uh, the Ivan, the terrible reputation that our our strength and conditioning coach has, or at least had in uh, college with Washington and USC. But yeah, there's nothing regrettable about the injuries as much as you just wish things could have been a tad different on that front and not losing so many key guys. Not not just that they lost those key guys, so many of them were lost for the season. And it started with Will Disley. And we were talking about some of the unusual things about uh, Seahawks seasons of yesteryear. What was odd about this year is that the away game to Arizona was totally normal. And we've been every year, this team goes to Arizona, something bad happens. And that includes the Super Bowl. It's either a heartbreaking loss, or a devastating injury, career ending injury. And then this year at Arizona, it's totally fine. A ho-hum 27 to 10 win. Nobody of consequence got hurt. And I don't think anybody even got hurt in the game, whether it was a consequence or not. But then the rematch against Arizona happens. And it's you know, back to life, back to reality. And everybody gets hurt and they lose that uh, faint hope of getting a first round bye. So, yeah, it, it was certainly the end of the season. It was just so devastating to see so many important players go down. The only blessing in disguise of all the running backs getting hurt is that we got this this uh, Marshawn Lynch reunion. Yes. Because if Carson if Carson had stayed healthy, I don't think they signed Lynch. They survived without Penny and Size.
0: I don't know. I I feel like the way that Pete Carroll talked about it and the way that Marshawn Lynch even talked about it in some of his interviews, it almost sounded like it might have been in the works after Rashad Penny. And I I don't have anything else to back that up apart from just a feeling, but I kind of feel like maybe that's about the time they reached out and uh, we're starting to get that rolling because it was almost right after the Chris Carson signing that it just happened.
1: Yeah, in fact, I think the last time I was on, it was after the Arizona game, and we had joked about them just signing Marshawn Lynch, right? And then, like the day that the show went on here, uh, <laughs> it went live to field goals. It actually happened, or at least the news broke that right. there was serious interest in signing him.
0: Yeah, and so it was it was wild how quickly that came together after the Chris Carson injury, and I know what you mean too about Arizona. And just that being a relatively normal game, because how many times in the past seasons has one of the kickers missed a field goal or an extra point? And Jason Myers was perfect in that game.
1: Yeah, it it was. We know that Hoshik, for the life of him, cannot stand that stadium. And then Janikowski missed two field goals in that game last year and then ends up redeeming himself by hitting the game winner at the buzzer. Uh, But this year's Arizona rematch uh, at CenturyLink Field, it felt like that game was just transported from Arizona to Seattle. Yeah. Like that's the game we're used to seeing. Uh, but, and they always win at Arizona too. It's just that it always becomes a Pyrrhic victory. But when Arizona has beaten Seattle and Seattle, it has had, you know, significant meaning to it. And that means like the 2013 season, they had to win in week 17 to win the division because they had lost to Arizona the week before they couldn't rest starters. Uh, 2015, they were dropped to four and five and had to make a serious push just to get into the playoffs. And then, uh, 2016, we were talking about serious injury, that loss in week 16, uh, I think it was that crazy 34-31 game. Not only did it essentially cost them the two seed, but Tyler Lockett, of course, had the the leg break. Mm-hmm. So with 2019, everything happened. With Carson going down, Brown didn't even play. Uh, you had ProSize having yet another injury. It was Yabody just... He was uh, injured
0: on the offensive line yeah. too.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yopati was injured. He didn't play another game this season, I believe. Or did he play against San Francisco? And then he 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 might have re-aggravated that neck injury. But still, he got hurt in that game.
0: So if you look back at this past season, and the question was to Pete Carroll, what he regrets most on looking back on this season, what is it for you? What should Pete Carroll regret the most? Uh,
1: Probably trotting out that safety pairing to start the year, which was to have Tedrick Thompson starting. Yeah. At free safety because this defense looks so much better uh when quandre Diggs was acquired and that isn't to say that they should have traded for Diggs in week one because you don't know if he was available at the time but it would have really been preferable if they had just let marquis blair take his lumps because at least i can see marquis blair's potential and he's and carol has been a bit hesitant to start his rookies lately um but Thompson was game losing bad and it happened like week after week after week until he got hurt. And that was one of the defining moments of the Seahawks season, which is the defensive struggles uh, with the safety pairing that they had. McDougald clearly was affected by Thompson's presence because he had to take on a lot more responsibility because of Thompson's struggles. But when Diggs came in, McDougald suddenly looked like a much better player. Uh, So that would probably be one of his bigger regrets. And also up there, and I think this would also be for both Carol and John Schneider, is the Ziggy Ants' signing. Yeah. Because they took a gamble on that, hoping that by trading away Frank Clark, they can find some sort of cheap alternative. We'll take a flyer on Ziggy because at his peak, he was a very productive pass rusher in Detroit. And not only did he not stay healthy throughout the season, he entered the season not healthy, recovering from shoulder surgery. And when he did play, he was largely ineffective. And we ended up seeing one of the worst Seahawks pass rushes uh, in a very, very long time and you add that to to Jadavion Clowney also being hurt, there are a lot of reasons why this defense just looked so, so far away from other defenses we've seen out of uh, a Pete Carroll coach team.
0: Well, and I think those are some big ones for me too. You know, I would I would expand that to a lot of the young players, the the young rookies. You know, if you put Jamarco Jones in at one of the guard positions and have him in there for a full season or like you said Marquis Blair, maybe Ugo Amadi out on the field, you know, by the end of the season they're feeling like they they have some confidence that they've gained throughout the season. And it's weird to see a, a Pete Carroll coach team so reluctant to play Young players in their rookie season because we've we've seen guys like Trey Flowers play the entire rookie season and you know he, and you can see that yeah he didn't have the greatest year this year but he is growing upon it we've seen Shaquille Griffin start his entire rookie season and now going into his third year so I, I think there is some importance to having those guys on the field early and I'll even go back with the uh, because yeah I, I, Ziggy Onza, to me he was one of the guys on my list too but. I go back in that and look at that decision to allow Justin Coleman to go to the Lions. And yes, it seemed like it was a big contract that the Lions gave him. But when you compare it to Ziggy Onza and $8 million a year that they paid him for this one year, you look at the cap hit for Justin Coleman and it's it's only $3 million for this year before it jumps to $9 million in 2020. But still, two years and what is that? Uh, $16 million, I think, of total cap hit in the first two years for Justin Coleman. I think I would take Justin Coleman over what we got from Ziggy Anza.
1: Well, if they weren't going to re-sign Coleman, and I don't think they ever were, I think what the Lions think so were offering... I either,
0: but I, in the context yeah. of Ziggy Anza.
1: Yeah, in the context of Ziggy Anza, I would have preferred Coleman yeah. like 10 times out of 10 because essentially this whole season was a, a hide-your-secondary game because they didn't have a proper plan at Nickel Corner. That's probably another regret that Carroll has because... Amadi ended up getting tasked with covering Devontae Adams in the slot in one of the biggest plays of the season. And predictably, he got burned because he's a rookie and Devontae Adams is an outstanding player. It would have been so much more intriguing to see Amadi get his shot uh, at the nickel corner position and get his reps. And Presumably, the coaching staff must have assumed he wasn't ready, but we saw Jamar Taylor in there instead. And when they weren't in base defense, which wasn't very often, and they had Jamar Taylor out there, Taylor was a a massive liability, kind of in the same way that Tedrick Thompson was. But it it was a surprise that Taylor lasted as long as he did before they decided to pull the plug. Um, From a pass rushing standpoint, it's not like there were no options available. They could have had a look at maybe trading for Robert Quinn. They could have signed Justin Houston Mm -hmm. because Justin Houston, I think, is a little bit more expensive. I believe he signed two years, 24 million with the Colts, but he looked quite productive and as if he hadn't missed a beat from when he was in Kansas City. So it was just so unusual to see a Pete Carroll team without a proper edge rusher. And that is so integral to his defense. And you could see how the house of cards just kind of collapsed
0: on them. So in hindsight, do you regret the Frank Clark trade at all? You know, we saw him have a big game against the Titans and and having three sacks in that championship game. And he had a slow start to the year but apparently he was dealing with some things and finished strong. And I I'm kind of curious. I, do you, do you feel like the team would have been different had they decided to keep Frank Clark and not gone through with the Jadevian Clowney trade? Um, yes
1: and no on the Frank Clark trade. I, I think there's a good reason why they traded Clark and it's just because of how much it would have cost to retain him. Mm-hmm. And that could have had a serious domino effect on everything from the draft class to future contracts like Bobby Wagner's extension, et cetera, et cetera. But what I think should have been expected is they would have found a proper replacement for Clark's production. and. Clowney and Ansa put together did not come remotely close. And even at full strength, when they did play on opposite ends of the line, it, it just did not produce in the same way that Clark did. And I also think Jaron Reed uh, ended up suffering because of it, because now we kind of have our answer to Reed's double-digit sack year last year. How much of it was that Clark was being dominant on the edge, mm-hmm. and it opened up the, the pathway for Reed to uh, produce as an interior rusher? And this year, Reed ended up even after suspension not being much of a factor as a pass rusher outside of like one or two games and that that's about as compelling a reason as any to not give him a massive contract if you were to resign
0: Reed probably on the lower end well and i think that brings us to some of our top offseason priorities which i want to get to coming up next Talking to Mookie Alexander about the Seahawks season and some of the offseason priorities. Be sure and subscribe to the show if you haven't already. SBNation.com slash NFL podcasts. And we're, you, you brought up Jaron Reed and going into this season, it felt like you know a lot of people asking the question, you know, do you give Jaron Reed the, the big contract going into the season coming off of that big 10 sack year? And now it looks like it was a good move for the Seahawks to wait and see what kind of production he could offer during the season. Obviously, with the six-game suspension, that hurt his numbers. And now going into this offseason, I do wonder if they'll be able to re-sign a a guy like Reed to a reasonable contract.
1: Yeah, it's going to be dependent on what the uh, the market is for a 4-3 defensive tackle. But the good news for the Seahawks is they're not in cap hell whatsoever. Uh, If you go to Hawk Blogger, Evan Hill has got a great uh, breakdown of of the cap space available for the Seahawks, and they should be in the top 10 in terms of available cap space somewhere in the ballpark of about $60 million. So it's not as if they're going to be having to penny pinch. But the way that Reed performed was certainly underwhelming. And given the struggles of the run defense, and that's supposed to be one of Jaron Reed's strengths, he was drafted as a run stopper more than any of his value as a pass rusher which came tacked on uh during the first few years of his career the struggles of the run defense. i have to think that reed has to have been part of the problem because they were getting gashed every which way so i would love to keep reed just to see if he can bounce back with a full season and, and not a six game suspension And i think he had also had a couple of ankle issues uh that certainly uh made him less than 100 in some games but i wouldn't break the bank for him either yeah, and the, the the other part of it is this whole defensive line might be retooled because you yeah, have Clowney as a free agent. There's no way you resign Ansa. I don't think that's defensible at this point, point. and then Quentin Jefferson's a free agent, so you could be looking at a completely revamped defensive line if they don't resign any of them. And I don't think you want to start from scratch. If they can keep Reed and Jefferson, that would be cool. And also Al Woods is on a one year deal, and I know he's his suspension should be up. So he'd be eligible to play game one next year. And he was probably one of their best run defenders. So at least get some of that interior depth uh,
0: intact. Yeah. I think with Al Woods, I think he finished as top three or four, uh, according to pro football focus in terms of run defense on that defensive line, or even on the whole team. Cause I think he was ranked up there with Bobby Wagner and Jadevian Clowney. So potentially bringing Woods back, his suspension would have been up, had the Seahawks made it to the NFC championship And Pete Carroll talked about the importance of continuity on the offensive line, as well as the defensive line. You brought up a number of those names that are going to be free agents. So I think he's probably going to be looking to bring guys back and, I think for me, Jadevian Clowney has to be, you, you brought up the, the number of, of cap dollars the Seahawks have, and that could potentially go even higher. You know, if they decide to cut guys like Justin Britt and Ed Dixon, you know, that's adding another 11, 12 million to the cap number. And that gives you plenty of room to sign a guy like Jadevian Clowney. I know it's going to probably be in the $20 million per year range, but I feel like this is a team that's lacking star type playmakers. And we've seen so many plays. He didn't rack up the number of sacks, but Clowney is a star on the defensive line. Yeah. I
1: think with Clowney for the Seahawks to succeed again on defense, they need a real superstar pass rusher, whether through the draft or getting one through free agency or an unlikely trade, Mm -hmm. uh, to be primary pass rusher. And then Clowney can be secondary, kind of like Watts in Houston and then Clowney. And then Clowney can feast, uh, uh, you know, kind of when the, the offensive line is so focused on what the Clowney can just wreak havoc one-on-one, uh, as he did so often there. But in Seattle, when Clowney was the main guy, how often was he double-teamed? He was double-teamed at, a, at an alarmingly high rate, and nobody else could get home. So for the Seahawks, uh, I would like to see them uh, keep – if they can keep Clowney without it being like 25 30 million a year, maybe in that $20 million, uh, a year range – that would be ideal because he does have value as a run defender. Uh, there's no denying that. There's no denying his uh, his effort because even playing through pain, he was very good in against Green Bay in stopping some of those rushes uh, on uh, with Aaron Jones uh, getting swallowed up in the backfield on a couple of occasions. So it, it's an interesting offseason and a very important one if you're John Schneider because the offense has got – about this, as high-level talent as we've seen uh, in quite some time, or at least over the last few years. And they had a pretty high-ranking offensively, points scored, DBOA, whatever metric you want to use. But for defense, it, was, uh, it, it wasn't good to watch. And I don't think they're lacking in talent, but the one thing you don't want to do is let some of the talented guys set free and don't resign them in free agency. Then uh, you risk the defense becoming much worse in 2020, and that puts a serious strain on the offense.
0: Yeah, and I know what you mean about the, in terms of Clowney's salary cap ceiling, I guess you'd say, because once you start getting into the $25 million range, you look at the fact that Clowney, even through his up until this year, he's never, he hasn't put together more than one complete season on the field. He's only had one 16 game season in his entire NFL career. So I, I don't think that you can go and out and pay a guy. You know, 26000000 dollars a year when when he's not putting healthy seasons on the field. Yeah,
1: and and that has to be a concern at this point. He might not be missing a ton of games, but he's missing games. Yeah, and he he's also playing in games where he's clearly not healthy, as evidenced in uh, the Green Bay game and the, the games before that when he returned from injury. So, I think that's going to be one of the uh, causes for concern if you're the Seahawks front office. Do you want to? Tie down 20 something million dollars a year to somebody who is still young. He's going to be 27 in about three weeks, but he's also somebody who had injury concerns since he entered the league. And then it continued throughout his time in Houston and it came up again this year. For somebody who is athletic as Clowney is, if that athleticism is hampered in any serious way because of the types of injuries he uh, has had over the years, then that's trouble and he could have a very short peak and his prime could be over like a lot sooner than we
0: thought. The Seahawks offense did finish among the top in the NFL in terms of DVOA and a big part of that Russell Wilson. We saw uh, pro football focus, give him the M- their MVP because just by far and away wins above replacement. He was the leader among the quarterbacks and uh, that I, I guess it feels kind of obvious to me, but I I think we all know that he's going to still finish up number two uh, behind Lamar Jackson because uh, just the spectacular season that he had and, and so few losses for the Ravens. But, uh, you know, Russell, he had a chance this year to solidify that MVP candidacy. You, you go back around, you know, after the San Francisco 49ers game, he seemed to be the front runner and then went through that kind of stretch where you go back even a couple of years. He, it seemed like in that stretch of about uh, 10 a week, 10 to 15, it seems like he has a little bit of a lull and he, he falls out of that MVP race a little bit.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that Jackson is clearly going to win MVP, and he 100% deserves it. But if Russell Wilson had, if we could bring back the second half of the 2012 season, Russell Wilson, and put him into the 2019 NFL, he would win MVP easily. Right. But that Wilson is not there anymore. He he can still scramble, and he at this point he's scrambling only when he absolutely has to. There's there's no more. Uh, reliance on read option they're not really having him keep it uh, as often these days but he has improved as a passer like tenfold hundred times uh better than what he used to be where which was you know is i don't want to uh yeah it was still really good much to some of his to some of the longtime wilson detractors but yeah a lot of it was if his first read wasn't there then he would start to panic a bit but he's gone through his progressions a lot better his accuracy is off the charts, especially in those those tight window throws and those improvised scramble drills with Baldwin previously and now Tyler Lockett. So with, with Wilson, I think this year was great in the sense that this was the first year that he was in prolonged MVP discussion and was fully justified. I'm not sure that that stretch in 2017 where he was like almost all the offense that he necessarily should have been in the MVP conversation because he was uh kind of to his own detriment he he, he had to do everything and it made him less efficient well this year he was super efficient just as he was last year and I think they can continue that and Brian Schottenheimer is very much a hot point of contention for Seahawks Twitter to debate is he good is he not good well I think that Schottenheimer has to have some credit for Wilson's development as a passer and that means a lot to me uh, in terms of whether or not Seattle's uh, window of contention can stay open. Because if we had the Wilson from 2014, 2015, he never got better, uh, then there would be some concern because I guess defenses would, quote unquote, figure him out. But it's hard to stop Russell Wilson, uh, especially when he's playing at this high level. And the lull he had in, uh, at the, towards the back end of the season, the injuries had to play a major factor because a lot of the injuries we saw were on the offensive side of the ball. And I suspect that the Will Disley injury had a much greater impact on this offense than we thought because his chemistry with Disley, his completion percentage uh, and willingness to throw over the middle was vastly different compared to when Hollister was there. And while Hollister was good, Will Disley looked like something special. like Not saying George Kittle, but somebody that... uh, Wilson could reliably uh, throw to over and over again outside of Lockett and Metcalf.
0: Yeah, I think they probably could have weathered through some of those other injuries. Uh, if they still have Justin Britt on the field instead of Joey Hunt, because, you know, yeah. as good as Joey Hunt was in, in filling in for him and with a broken leg, uh, he still was outmatched at times. And yeah, not having that tight end, you know, say what you want about Hollister. He had some, some big catches, clutch catches, uh, down the stretch too, but. You know, you're relying him on some big moments where I think Disley would have would have come up even bigger. And yeah, I, I think they do get through that if they have those two guys. And it does kind of bring us to some of the other offseason priorities too, because you're counting on guys like I, I don't know if I can say with a, a whole lot of confidence that I can count on a guy like Chris Carson to stay healthy through an entire season. Uh, Rashad Penny g- coming off an ACL injury, uh, who knows if he's going to be ready for the start of next season. And you can't count on Will Disley having back-to-back injured seasons. So Russell Wilson, I think, you know, as, as much as he can do so many great things, he he still needs a little bit of help. And whether or not it's you know, bringing Justin Britt back and having him at center or dra- drafting a guy to play center, uh, they, they still have a lot of pieces on offense I feel like they need to address despite the fact that they were in the top 10.
1: Yeah. I know I just said a few minutes ago that this offense is as talented as we've seen over the past few years, but the other problem is a lot of the talent is injured right now and some of them might not be ready to start next season. Like Rashad Penny, I doubt that he's going to be able to make it to week one, judging by what Carol has said and the severity of the injury, he could start on the PUP list. Mm-hmm. So running back as much as I don't want it to be a priority, I wouldn't be shocked if the Seahawks looked at getting a running back in the mid to late rounds or just sign one off free agency. Uh, because of Carson's injury history, he's ended two seasons out of three on injured reserve, and he missed a couple of games in his uh, 2018 season. I think separately, ankle and knee, whatever the case, he did miss time. So they have to be concerned about his durability. Penny didn't have any durability concerns in college, and sometimes it's just that's the the luck of the draw. A right. Horrible injury just as he was, just as he was getting more involved in the offense, and I suspect that had he stayed healthy we would have seen him get a, a bigger share of the carries, a bigger share of the touches, and it could have totally changed the course of this offense to make up for the fact that they had had lost Disley and had to adjust there. And you bring up a good point about Joey Hunt, and he certainly soldiered through injury, but we, we know his limitations. He is very undersized for his position, and so often we saw him get immediately pancaked uh, by a defensive tackle off the snap, and it proved to be a drive killer more often than not. So... I would not be shocked if Britt is a cap casualty, uh, but they have to address the center position. I think left tackle is pretty good at the moment, even if Dwayne Brown starts to decline. Mm -hmm. George Fant was performing at a very admirable level when he did play at left tackle. Uh, Left guard, if they can keep Eupati for his value in the run game, uh, that would be nice, certainly on a cheap contract. But again, injury concerns for him, too. Uh, at right guard, I think Fluker's a free agent, is he not?
0: No, he's going into his last year, but they he, could save three million if he's uh if they cut him. Yeah, so with, with Fluker, I can't really grade how, how he did did this
1: season, but again, more notable for his run blocking than his pass blocking. And then right tackle, Jermaine uh, Effetti. <laughs> that is gonna be uh one big debate over the next couple of months, to resign or not to resign. I think they won't re sign. He's certainly not. As bad as he's made out to be, but uh, probably not what they were hoping for in terms of development through his his rookie year. And I know a lot of the top offensive linemen can have a lot of penalties like Laramie Tunsil, but for a Fetty, you got to be playing at an all pro level or at least a pro bowl level to, to offset some of those uh, damaging false starts and holding penalties that he has. So the offensive line is going to be a very uh, interesting thing to monitor more so than the defensive line, because for the offensive line, Wilson, once again, towards the back end of the season was getting sacked a bunch and It wasn't all Wilson holding onto the ball too long. It was very often bust and protection, blown blocks the whole nine yards. So Seattle ideally really focuses on proper pass blocking offensive linemen just so I don't have to see Wilson under pressure as often as I've seen him pretty much his entire career. And really, it's only logical. It is a passing league, and we need to see some sort of prioritizing of pass blocking prowess over the run blocking prowess.
0: I really am curious to see what they'll do with the because for me, it comes down to the number. You know, what's the number that they give him if he does decide to stay? And I feel like if it's over, if it's in double digits per year, I I think that's going to be awfully hard to take. Uh, I I mean, he could go out and show that uh, as a veteran, maybe things turn around for him, but Gosh, if I if I look at the last four years and and see him sign another three, four-year contract and think, oh, we got three or four more years than this, and and it is a double-digit salary, that's gonna be tough. But George Fant, you know, they have to go out, and if they want him to stay with the team, they gotta resign him too. So between Fant and Upati, Potty uh, done with his deal, Joey Hunt, he's a free agent going into this offseason. They they have a lot of guys to make decisions on. And again, we hear Pete Carroll talking about continuity, yet you know, Dwayne Brown's like the only guy that you can really say with confidence that yeah, this guy's going to be back, and and then your younger guys like Jermarco Jones and Phil Haynes.
1: Yeah, and of course you don't want continuity of a bad product, no. but in this case there are some good pieces on this line, or at least even if they're not the greatest offensive lineman in the world, they do at least one thing well. Like Iopati might have had some issues as a uh, as a pass blocker, but he as you can see on field goals especially the the Alistair Corp breakdowns that's you potty sprang a lot of those big runs by Carson and Penny. Uh, the only concern I have in terms of the depth is Jamarco Jones whether a guard or a tackle I don't think he's athletic enough to, to hang with uh, you know top shelf defensive lines he's much better suited to guard yeah but he's also he, he didn't play guard ever until this year when he had to replace Fluker uh, and then Phil Haynes, I don't think he did too badly when he had to fill in for Jamarco in the Packers game, but he's very raw. Uh, I know they were high on his potential uh, when they drafted him, and we, I think we had some good film on him, too. So now that he's going to have a full camp, as long as he doesn't get injured again, if they don't keep you potty, I would have to think that Haynes is going to be in serious competition, if not one of the favorites to, uh, to be the starting left guard.
0: Well, this past weekend, we got to watch the AFC and NFC championships. We got to see the San Francisco 49ers beat up on the Packers team once again and see the Chiefs beat up on the Titans. So uh, not the most exciting games. I guess there was at least a little bit of uh, of question as to what the outcome might be at the beginning of that Chiefs game. And I feel like collectively, as uh, Seahawks fans, we're all going to be rooting for the Chiefs in a couple weeks.
1: Yeah, it was, the, the Titans-Chiefs game was basically going to determine who we were going to root for in the Super Bowl. <laughs> right. Because I don't think anybody, uh, even if Green Bay had upset San Francisco, that would have been like, okay, we were Packers fans for one week, but doesn't mean we actually want them to win the whole thing. <laughs> uh, so for the Titans-Chiefs, that was actually a good game for about two and a half quarters. Yeah. And then it you just felt the inevitability when the Chiefs were able to uh, have a sustained drive and, and the Titans just couldn't get off the field. Patrick Mahomes is an absolute magician. He's been phenomenal this postseason. And with all the Lamar Jackson talk, I think uh, Mahomes is having these uh, don't forget about me type of games because he was the reigning MVP or he is the reigning MVP, at least for the next couple of weeks. Hopefully, uh, he can be Super Bowl MVP against San Francisco. Uh, But for the Packers 49ers game, I I think most of us thought that was going to be another blowout. Green Bay just matches up so poorly against San Francisco like I I would have picked San Francisco to beat Seattle had Seattle made it to the NFC championship game mm-hmm. but they wouldn't have been that embarrassed right I don't think sure they might have been down 27 nothing at halftime because that's just how the Seahawks roll in the playoffs but maybe they would have lost 27-21 <laughs> not 34 uh, nor 37 to 20.
0: Well, that's what has me worried going into the Super Bowl, Mookie. As Seahawks fans were hitching our wagon to a team that went down 24 to nothing to the Houston Texans and then 10 nothing to the Tennessee Titans, I feel like the Chiefs are going to go into this game and they're going to be in a deficit early to the 49ers. And I don't know if it, it, that uh, now they I think they have the offense to climb out of it. But I do worry that that that, that San Francisco 49ers defense and the pass rush, they might actually be able to contain Patrick Mahomes.
1: Yeah, as much as it pains me to say it, I have to favor San Francisco Ooh. right now over Kansas City. Uh, and it's for what you stated, that they have the running game to keep Kansas City off the field, which is only half of the equation. And then the other half is they have the defense to force stops. And we've also kind of seen this movie before. Like they have this elite offense with a, and an unstoppable quarterback and how are you going to stop all of these weapons at receiver, blah, blah, blah and then you have this monstrous defense that comes in and does exactly that. And we know that the last time an NFC West team played an AFC West team in the Super Bowl, uh, a juggernaut in the 2013 Denver Broncos, the Seahawks put up an historic beatdown. Uh, I don't think we're going to get a 43-8 out of this game. Uh, With Kansas City, one of the variables here is Mahomes' mobility. It it can offset some of that pass rush. But then the other part of me is thinking – the 49ers front four is so fast, mm-hmm. and they can keep up with Mahomes' speed. They're certainly not going to do what the Titans did, which was a repeated series of three-man rushes with one spy who wasn't really doing a whole lot of anything, really, and giving Mahomes all the time in the world to either scramble or make a big play deep down the field. But truth be told, it is probably the best Super Bowl matchup uh, we could have had out of a, outside of a, a Baltimore-San Francisco rematch, but I don't want to be put in the position where... The 49ers going to end up hoisting a Lombardi trophy. Like, I, I don't want to see that happen. I'm, I would love for Richard Sherman to have another great game, but in a losing effort.
0: Yeah. Well, I think we've been pretty lucky as Seahawks fans watching all of our NFC West uh, rivals go to the Super Bowl and eventually lose. So I, I'm hopeful that that streak continues. But gosh, I look at the way that the San Francisco 49ers beat the Packers and just looking in terms of DVOA at rush defense. The Packers ranked number 23, the Kansas City Chiefs ranked 29.
1: Yep, and while Kansas City did an excellent job of containing Derrick Henry, Henry is power first and then speed, and he's got good speed for a big man. Mm -hmm. The 49ers have a better offensive line, and they have speed across every running back they have, whether it's Coleman, who's hurt, so I don't know if he's going to play necessarily, but Matt Breida is very fast. And then Raheem Mostert, (laughs) if the Packers had made a more serious rally, Mostert could have been in there for non-garbage time and run for 300 easily. I mean, he is just shot out of a cannon. Like Tyreek Hill and Raheem Mostert are going to be the two fastest players uh, on the field when Super Bowl Sunday hits, but for San Francisco it just feels like the fact that they can win this easily with Jimmy Garoppolo just handing the ball off 95% of the time uh, that tells you something because Garoppolo has shown, as he did against New Orleans that he can win a game in which they have to rely on his, uh, on his arm and his decision making But if the running game is just going to keep working, uh, why go away from it? Now, there is a big difference between, quote unquote, establishing the run and then just running into a brick wall over and over again, and then establishing the run, getting nine yards of carry, and then just you do it over and over and over again, because it's clearly a much more successful play.
0: Yeah, well, when another team can't stop you, why not? And I went back and looked at it just to see in the playoffs, the last time that a team won a football game only throwing the ball, only making eight or fewer pass attempts. The last team to do it, the 1973 Miami Dolphins.
1: Yeah, they're playing 1970s football, and it's working. But of course, the wrinkles here, you you didn't see the men in motion in the 1970s and all this misdirection. It's just a modified version of smash mouth football, and it's working brilliantly for Kyle Shanahan. And I think he's a brilliant offensive mind, Uh, but ideally, And San Francisco does have a big lead, say 28-3. to Kyle Shanahan has some bad flashbacks and then decides to let Garoppolo throw it a bit more. And then they end up giving the ball away to Kansas City on interceptions or strip sack fumbles. And the Chiefs come back and get another miraculous win. But boy, uh, there's no denying. I know that we have to root against the 49ers because they're the biggest division rivals. But... This turnaround from, what was it, 4-12 and 12 last year, and they probably would not have been a great team if Garoppolo had stayed healthy, but from 4-12 and 12 last year to 13-3 and three and easily winning the NFC, or uh, going through the NFC playoffs in, in emphatic fashion, blowing out Minnesota, and blowing out Green Bay, you cannot deny that John Lynch uh, has done a very good job of turning that team around. It's one thing to have a bunch of early draft picks constantly picking in the top five, top ten it doesn't matter if you're wasting those picks. And he certainly wasn't wasting those picks.
0: No, it definitely didn't hurt him at all to have his quarterback go down last year and turn that into Nick Bosa this year. So, And uh, it was against Kansas City. Garoppolo, it's full
1: circle. He, he got injured against Kansas City last year. Oh, that's wild. And obviously the season went into the tank after that, and that's how they ended up with Bosa. So it was almost a, a blessing in disguise that they added to their fearsome uh, defensive line with probably the defensive rookie of the year.
0: Well, Mookie, as we close this out, I, I want to thank you for doing a little bit of detective work uh, these last couple of weeks to find out that the Seahawks may be rewarded with their 7-1 and road record by starting off the season with back-to-back games on the road. And and nothing is for sure, but explain why the likelihood is there. So uh,
1: with Seattle's 2020 regular season schedule, we're not going to know the full schedule until probably April, maybe a week or two before the NFL draft. And by then, free agency will have happened. So You know the the schedule makers are going to determine the the home and away and the nationally televised games and the featured Fox slot and featured CBS uh, slot based on who goes where. But for the Seahawks, uh, the Mariners have a home game uh, on the opening Sunday of the NFL season, and then I believe the Sounders also play at home that day, and they have CenturyLink Field, so that's a a non-starter for. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Seahawks opening week one at home because uh, the Mariners also play a night game on the Monday night. And then the week after, the Mariners are once again at home on a Sunday. So unless uh, there's a home game on Thursday or something like that, actually, I believe that the Mariners are home that Thursday too. So uh, short of a, a Monday night appearance, will week two, Seattle's going to start 2020 the same way they started 2018 with two road games. And it is now possible, looking at the Super Bowl, if San Francisco does win and hopefully they don't. Okay. If San Francisco does win, you look at the Niners home schedule, the Seahawks would have to be strong favorites to open up the season as their opening nine opponents. Yeah. Because the other opponents for the, the Niners on that home schedule include Washington, Philadelphia, and then of the two AFC East teams they could have gotten, it ended up being, I believe, uh, the Bills and the Dolphins. And that doesn't sound very appealing at all for, certainly not for NBC. So if you're NBC and if you're the NFL, the regular season, this regular season ended with the infamous Trey Greenlaw tackle of Hollister at the one yard line and one of the more dramatic games of the season. If the Niners win the Super Bowl, why not start NFL 101 with a rematch of Seahawks 49ers, especially given the way that this year's games went?
0: I think I would put almost all my money down on that happening if the 49ers win. I and that that would be the opening game of the season on Thursday night. It makes so much sense, especially considering the drama. The NFL would love to build up the fact that they played two games so closely and uh, undoubtedly. So just another reason to root for the 49ers to lose the Super Bowl.
1: Yeah, and we if again, if San Francisco wins and we know what the schedule is going to be, we probably should be rooting for Seattle to, uh, to be the opening night opponent because if it's going to be back-to-back weeks on the road, that essentially functions as a mini bye week. Oh, Whatever happens a week one, you get 10 days off before your next road game. But I don't want to really <laughs> think that far ahead and, uh, and dreading watching the the Lombardi trophy getting passed around at Santa Clara. And then that sixth or, or however many Super Bowls it want to be, the sixth banner uh, being hung from the rafters. Uh, I don't want to think about that. I just want to think that the Seahawks are going to start the year uh, 2-0 on the road against whomever they play.
0: Well, Mookie, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. Congratulations once again on the managing editor position. And I'm sure we'll be talking a whole lot more in the off season. So stay tuned to FieldGoals.com. Uh, be sure and follow at FieldGoals on Twitter. Uh, your Twitter handle, Mookie, at Mookie Alexander. And uh, more to come. We'll talk to you again throughout the offseason. Go Hawks. Go Hawks.